I invite you to take a copy of God's Word and turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 22, moving to chapter 4, verse 1, Colossians chapter 3. In a previous church, there was a graduate student that I had the privilege to get to know pretty well. I met him after one service where he came to see his niece baptized. One of the ways that you could know this person, he was immensely skeptical of the claims of Christianity. So my first introduction to him is he happened to be in the shape, the line of the pastor as you go out the back door. If, if he would have known that was the line that he was in, I, I'm 100% sure he would have gone out another exit, but he happened to find himself in the momentum of people. He shook my hand and he leaned into me and he said, do you actually believe anything that you're preaching? It was for me a great invitation you know, at, uh, you say those kinds of things to me after a service. I, I appreciate that kind of utter honesty. And so I said, I need to get to know this guy. And so I invited him to lunch. And there were many, many lunches that we had. And a great friendship arose. Uh, one of the primary topics that we talked about was his skepticism of the claims of the Bible. He had a, a, a real difficulty with accepting the authority of God's word. So oftentimes our conversations would be like this. You, you can't really believe the Bible, David, because you know the Bible defends slavery, right? I'd say it doesn't defend slavery. I mean, you're taking passages out of context and making them a proof text for these kinds of things. He'd say, well, look, he'd pull out his iPhone. He would Google a passage like this and he would say, read it. Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. Bond servants... Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. In the original language of the New Testament, the start of verse 22 is a word in Greek that is doulos, which can be translated slave, and it might be slave in your copy of God's word. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Was my friend right? Does God's word defend what we know to be this heinous subjugation of a people? Does the Bible defend, does the Bible give credence to that sinful institution? I think it's important as we're walking through God's word to take God's word as it comes to us. And it's important for you to understand that as we bridge the gap between the then of the text and the now of our context, it is important to hear God's word in its original context. So anytime you read a passage, you're bringing it to, uh, bringing to the text suppositions, interpretive insights, you're bringing it to it, your own history and even the history of our country here. 
So before we begin to think of how this passage would apply to our life, there are a couple of points and a principle that I want you to see from understanding this passage. So the first point that I want you to discover is a portrait of slavery in Paul's day. Prior to understanding how this passage would speak to your life or to my life, you need to understand two points about slavery in the Greco-Roman world. As Paul is addressing this passage, he is in a section of Scripture where in Colossians chapter 3, he is saying, what does Christ at the center mean for marriages? What does it mean for families? What does it mean to be a mother or a father, to be a son or a daughter? And now he's extending in Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 22, to, the, uh, to the, the greatest ring of what a household would have looked like in that first century world. So that he would address slaves would not have been surprising to anyone who heard Paul's words in that original hearing. If you were to walk, through the streets of Colossae in that first century world, conservative estimates would have been that one-third of the population in Colossae would have been slaves. Other estimates were a half of the population would have been slaves. So you have some in that first century world that were doing the most demeaning and dangerous jobs that no one else wanted to do in the, in the minds of that Greco-Roman world. Other slaves would have had responsibilities of teaching. There would have been those that were raising the children of their masters. There would have been those in that first century world that would have been given tremendous economic responsibility to run the businesses of the master. So there was a wide range of responsibility and even experiences of slavery in that first century world. The second point that you need to understand historically about slavery that is very different than the way we would read back into this passage is, is that slavery in the first century world had no racial or ethnic connotations to it. There was no particular group of people that were subjugated to slavery in Paul's day. Slavery was the result of conquering armies coming in, taking the citizens back and utilizing them as collateral and utilizing them as an economic group. So it's important for you to see there would have been no solidarity between the ethnic and religious uh, groups coming together. There would have been a diversity of people that were experiencing this. Actually, we have reports of people in the first century world selling themselves into slavery to bring about some kind of economic stability for themselves. So it is a very different world than what we would read into it in our own nation's history. It's important for you to see that. But my friend's question still remains, why wouldn't Paul try to condemn and overthrow the institution of slavery in the words that he gives us here in Colossians chapter 3? Why would he not address it? Now again, the historical reality is very important that Paul's writing to a small group of Christians. They would have had no political voice whatsoever in that Roman institution of slavery. So for Paul to say, go out and try to overthrow the institution of slavery would have been like him saying to this lone group, go out into the vast wilderness and scream out at the top of your lungs with no one to hear them. This was the institution that was very commonplace in that first century world. 
But, but lest you think that Paul actually isn't overthrowing the institution, lest you think that he is condoning the institution, notice with me not only a portrait of slavery in Paul's day, but notice the dignity of the slave in Paul's mind. Because it's important for you to see, while Paul doesn't condemn slavery in the words that we have here and the corollary passage that we have in the book of Ephesians, he is, through his words and the larger context of what we will discover just in a moment, he is undermining the prevailing cultural assumptions of slavery. Now, how is he doing that? Well, one, he's addressing both the slave and the master in the same hearing and sitting. So he is assuming that in that early church gathering, the slave and the master would be present together to hear this. Not only does he address the bondservant, the slave, but he also addressed the master in chapter 4, verse 1. That would have been absolutely unheard of in Paul's day to give that kind of specific exhortation to the one who had, in Paul's cultural context, all rights over the property, quote-unquote, that they owned. So by Paul addressing not only the slave, but also the master, pointing the master to a greater master, he is raising the dignity of the slave to the eyes of the master. He is showing that the image of God is present in both slave and master. The dignity and the worth of the individual is present in both slave and master. But this is more than a principle. This is more than a principle for the Apostle Paul. This is personal for the Apostle Paul. And, and to get the personal nature of what Paul is doing here in the book of Colossians, you need to see how Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 and 9 speak to a personal way that this subject is intersecting Paul's life. So he comes to the end of his letter. And he's saying there are a couple of people that I'm going to send your way. And he says in verse 7 of Colossians 4, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. And with him, verse 9, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place. Now to get the full range, the full orb of what's going on here, we need to know a little bit of the background of who Onesimus is. He is a brother. He is one of you. We see this in Colossians chapter 4. All you have to do is turn in Philemon to hear the rest of the story. And this is the rest of the story. Onesimus was a slave. He was a slave to his master, Philemon. He escapes. There are some estimations that he would have taken money or property with him. He gets to where the Apostle Paul is in prison. The Apostle Paul, through the sovereignty of God, is able to speak into the slave's life. He becomes a Christian. And then this slave voluntarily helps the Apostle Paul to do the ministry that he's called to. Well, Paul knows Philemon who would have been this influential leader in the church at Colossae. Some reports would be that the very church would have met in his house. And so in the book of Philemon, he is sending Onesimus back. And just as he says in Colossians chapter 4, he says, I'm not sending him back as a slave, but rather I am sending him back to be reconciled with you as a brother in Christ. I am sending him back as one of you. So lest you think the Bible is silent on this issue, the very context of what Paul is saying here would have been the foundation that abolitionists like William Wilberforce in England in the 18th century would use these words 
to petition Parliament over decades for the abolition of slavery in England. So the institution of slavery and the uh, abolishment of that institution was on the back of these words that we're reading right here. The Bible is not silent on this issue. So it's important for you to see a portrait of slavery in Paul's day. It's important for you to see the dignity of the slave in Paul's mind. But finally, this morning, we want to say in our context of Birmingham, Alabama in 2017, what is the gift and witness of work then out of the context of the slave-master relationship? And to that end, you go back to Colossians 3. You look with me at verse 22, and you notice it says, Slaves give complete obedience. Now, again, that excludes those things that would have been contrary to God's will and God's way. He's always, throughout this whole section in Colossians 3, speaking with the assumption that these are Christian masters, these are Christian individuals who are giving orders and are giving commands here. Notice what he says. Don't work. Don't work by way of eye service as people pleasers, but work with a sincerity of heart. In the original language of the New Testament, you could translate that phrase, a singleness of heart. So there's an absence of self-seeking motives. And you would ask, well, why? Why the absence of self-seeking motivation here? And he would answer it in verse 23, because your service is not to your earthly master. Your service is not to men, but it is to the Lord. And what is he doing? He is giving dignity to any job, to any vocation, that your reward in your work is an inheritance that is given to you by the eternal master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's giving you and he's giving me this wonderful portrait of how we are to view our work. Now it's important as we, again, bridge this between the then of the context, the now of our context, that it's important for you to see that that slave master role, it does not translate here to the employee and employer role. It's important for you to see that distinction. But with that distinction and with that disclaimer, there is a principle that emerges for any of you in this room, whether you are a student or whether you are decades into your career. And that principle is this. As Christians, we are called to perform our work as a service given unto the Lord. That as a Christian, you and me, we are called to perform our work as a service given unto the Lord. For those of you that are my age or a little older, you remember the show with Tony Danza called Who's the Boss? Who's the Boss? And for us this morning, Paul answers this question. He answers for the Christian, who is the boss? And when you understand who your boss is, then it transforms the way you view your 8 to 5, your 9 to 5, your Monday through Friday pursuits. Now, there's some of you in this room that are bosses. There are some of you in this room that are managers. There are some of you that are supervisors. There are some of you that there is no higher rung to climb in the corporate ladder than the rung that you find yourself at. There is no better view and no higher office than the one that you occupy. And so Colossians chapter 4 speaks to you. If you are that boss, if you are that master, you are called to treat those under your purview of influence and responsibility justly and fairly. Now, there are others of you in this room, you don't have that corner office. 
There's others of you in this room that know what it's like to serve under, to, have, to be given supervision by very caring and compassionate supervisors or bosses. There are others of you that have uh, very demanding and even maybe you have the privilege, and I say that very sarcastically, to work with someone that could feel at times demeaning. I remember about a year ago, the New York Times posted an obituary of a person who was a.k.a. Tiger Mike. Tiger Mike was this Houston oil and gas magnet. And in the late 70s, he had this vast empire before him. And he was known, really notorious and infamous for sending out these company-wide memos to put the employees in their places. He was known in the obituary as the world's grumpiest boss. This is what he said about office birthday parties. There will be no more birthday celebrations, birthday cakes, or levity, or celebrations of any kind within my office. This is a business office, and if you have to celebrate, if you have to do it, then do it after office hours on your own time. He sounds like a nice guy, doesn't he? So, some of you have worked for Tiger Mike and some of you have worked for Michael Scott's or, you know, you, you know what it's like to have a vast different work experience in life. So what is Paul saying to us? He's saying that when you notice that God is the boss, it transforms the way you approach your work life. And no longer do you see work as a result of the fall and something that you have to endure and grin and bear it. But actually, you see that work is a gift. Do you know that? That the first portrait we have of God is a God who is working. He is creating ex nihilo. He's creating out of nothing by speaking in six days creation into existence. What is he doing? He's working. He's working such that he has to rest on the Sabbath. He has to rest on the seventh day. More than that, as you go through creation, you discover that he places Adam in the garden. And what does he do? He gives him responsibility. He says, work, name these animals. More than that, when you get Adam and Eve in the garden, he says to Adam and Eve, you need to cultivate this. You need to work in the garden. I am giving you responsibility. More than that, when the incarnate son of God comes to earth, he apprentices at the knee of his carpenter father. So Jesus Christ, pre-Aleve, pre-Advil, would wake up and he knows what it's like to have sore shoulders. That your Savior knows what it's like to wake up and grunt out of the bed, feeling an ache in his lower back. So work is not Evil work is a gift. Yes, after the fall, there are thorns and thistles. Whether you work outside or you work behind a computer, we have a different relationship with work. There is no doubt about that. But work in and itself is a good gift that God has given to you to flourish so that you can look like him, one who works your heavenly father. And more than that, when we get to heaven... That, that heavenly vision of what it's going to look like, it is not you and me floating on clouds, playing harps, sitting back, being served in heaven. But rather, when we get to the new heavens and the new earth, the portrait of redeemed creation is you and me working, being given responsibility, but without the effects of the fall. 
without the, the toll and the thistles of what it means to work this side of heaven. Work is our future. But you will work and never grow weary. You will, you will experience the goodness of a job well done at the end of the day. You will know that satisfaction for an eternity without the tinge of the fall upon you. That is where we're headed to. So with that said, there is dignity and there is joy and there is opportunity in any vocation that is represented in this room. No matter how little it might seem. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he, he said it best, poetically, as he always does so often. He said this way, if a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep the streets even as Michelangelo painted or Beethoven composed music or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so that with all the hosts of heaven and earth, what Paul's to say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well, Christian, you're, you're called to be salt and light. And the majority of your waking hours, will, you will do that as a student or you will do that as an employer or as an employee. Your vocation is the primary means by which you will be a witness to the Lord. So how are you to be a witness for him? Is that for you to go into the office and shirk your responsibilities and pray all day long? And the answer is no. Is that for you to go into the office and, and, and go into the break room and anytime someone comes in there, for you to beat them over the head with the Bible and to preach all day? The answer is no. Yes, you're called to be a verbal witness to your family, to your friends, to your neighbors, to your co-workers over a period of time that is prayerful and patient and wise but your primary calling in your vocation is to do your vocation with excellence and a commitment and a faithfulness that makes your other coworkers say, he's doing this for more than the paycheck. She is doing this for more than the paycheck. See, all of us post the fall. All of us have a fallen relationship with work. All of us know what it's like to feel, oh, it's Monday morning. I, all of us know that. But when God empowers you and he gives you the opportunity to, to transform the way that you see work, that you work unto the Lord and not unto an earthly boss, it transforms the way you look at what you do from eight to five. And so whether you are an architect or you're an engineer in this room, whether you're a sales manager or you are a physician, whether you are a teacher or you are a student, whether you are retired or you're a volunteer, whether you are a pharmaceutical rep, whatever your vocation might very well be this morning. Do you know who the boss is? Do you know who you really answer to? You see, when you remember that tomorrow morning, it will make all the difference in what you do. Let us pray.